You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show. Thanks everybody for tuning in this week. Uh, we're excited to welcome Jamie Rice from Babson Hockey, head coach Babson Hockey to the show. Jamie or coach, I don't know what you prefer. I prefer coach. I've been called uh, a lot of things that are in between and are worse, so don't Okay, <laughs> so I'm going to call you coach. Coach is on his 16th season at Babson Hockey starting in 2004, has brought the team to handful, if not more, of ECAC tournament championships, um, nine All-Americans, according to your record, and uh, full disclosure, and most importantly, Coach Rice uh, has my son involved in his program currently. So I've had um, a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at the culture of his team and the culture of his coaching, which has been a huge plus for my son and a tremendous experience for me as a parent. But really what we want to dive into is understanding you know, your journey to getting to coaching and what's made you successful and also Perhaps you could share with us some of your failures along the way, too, because no one gets to the top of the mountain without slipping a few times here and there, right? Oh, sure. Absolutely. That's, so, that's Coach. The most. Yeah, no, I have, too. So, Coach, super excited to have you on. Thanks thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And it's uh, actually 17th year, although I'm not sure what we're currently counting this COVID uh, situation is. So, we hope it's 17, but this is the start of 17 years, so. Uh, Good. It really is. Uh, it's just, uh, it's been 31 years as a college coach. It's the only thing I've ever done. It's what I fill out on my year end tax form. So I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do what I, what I've done. Well, I think the kids have been blessed to have you as a coach. So I'd love to start off a little bit at the beginning. At some point in your life, you played hockey. I know you played for Babson. Is that correct? Yes, it is. But there must have been a long journey to get to Babson as a hockey player. So when did the skates go on and when did the puck drop, so to speak? Uh, So I grew up actually in a family of basketball players. I was the only person involved in hockey. My father was a Boston University graduate, had season hockey tickets. He played a little basketball there, played in the military when he was in Korea. He coached my sister in junior high and high school summer basketball. So, you know, I really grew up in and around basketball much more. But he had BU season hockey tickets and we used to go to all the games. Mm. I think it was, you know, they were, we had four tickets and it was probably, you know, $9 for the, for the four of us to go to each game. So it was a different day and age. Um, so that certainly piqued my curiosity and interest a little bit. Obviously, I'm growing up in a time, I was born in 1967. So the Boston Bruins were kind of a big deal like they are now for these kids. You know, Bobby Orr and the Big Bat Bruins and the number of rinks that sprouted up in the area was certainly the Bruins. and and BU having some real success in and around that time, the local college hockey scene, BC was very good. Harvard was excellent. Um, so hockey was kind of a New England thing just outside to my family. And one of my youngest babysitters, her son was a year older than me. We played youth hockey together, but she was a figure skating teacher. And probably five or six years old, you know, it was either bring a pair of skates and get on the ice while I'm giving my skating lessons or sit in the stands and watch. And that was kind of my start. So I started in Newton Youth Hockey, uh, different day and age. It was all town-based youth hockey. I played Newton Youth Hockey all the way through Bantams. Was really fortunate to have a lot of different coaches who were really 
not only good coaches, um, because I think as a youth player, you don't understand the difference what makes a great coach. They were really good coaches. They knew the game. They instilled the love of the game in us. Uh, they made it fun. They were dads a lot like they are today. Uh, but they were all really good coaches. And I think the biggest compliment I can give any of them was none of them ever snuffed out the fire. You know, none of them ever made it. So I didn't want to go back the next day, the next game, the next week, the next month, the next year. Um, so they really kind of put me on that path of, you know, this is a great game. I had a lot, all my best friends played. Uh, we were fortunate to have really good teams. So it was fun going to the rink. It was fun being around it. It was a lot of them were BC kids who grew up whose parents had gone to BC. A few of them had played at BC. One had played at Norwich, Paul Buckley. Um, so they were, you know, they were hockey people. And I just kind of got swept up in the stream coming from this basketball family. Um, but again, the biggest thing is they, they never killed my passion. You know, I just loved them. Did your, did your dad want you to play hockey or, or was he like, Jamie, yeah. why aren't you grabbing the, the basketball and playing with the other kids in the family? Yeah, I, I love to play everything. And, and my parents are great. They let me kind of explore and push my own journey as far as what interests me. I played baseball. Uh, I played a little bit of basketball, you know, it was uh modified CYO, I guess you could call it at the Newton Y. Um, you know, I tried soccer, I tried lacrosse, uh, but hockey was the thing that just really kind of stuck with me. I was, I don't know, I, I people ask me a lot, like, what did I grow up a Bruins fan? I really didn't. I grew up a college hockey fan. I mean, BU hockey to me was the be all and end all. It was where the world started and ended as far as hockey. So I think in some respects, my path was really not, I want to play in the NHL. My, my path was I want to play at BU. And, and and maybe more so than for a kid who wants to grow up playing the NHL. There's a little bit more clear path to how you have to, you know, what you have to do to get to be a college hockey player. Um, it's certainly hard and arduous. And, and when you're eight or nine or 10 or 14 years old, it's still a big challenge. But that was really, for me, it was like the end game. You know, like I want to play, I want to play college hockey. And then I'm 13 years old or 12 at the time. The 80 team wins the Olympics. They have four BU players. So it was like, for me, that was probably the pinnacle. 1978, B wins the national championship. 1980, at the four guys in the Olympics. Like, that was the pinnacle of my hockey. This has me hook, line, and sinker. It's really suck it, sunk its teeth into me. This is what I want to do. This is what I love. But I, I loved baseball just as much. I played football in high school. You know, I was fortunate enough to be pretty good in all three where I, I played a fair bit and was captain of teams and had – actually had opportunities in all three sports to play in college, but hockey was just the one, I guess, that really had its deepest grip. You know, we joke all the time in our house. Um, you know, if you grew up in and around this area of New England, you got to learn to swim, you got to learn to read, you got to learn to skate. You know, hockey's a part of the That's funny. Like in New England. And, and so yeah. it really just sunk its teeth in. But my youth coaches were great in that they, you know, they and my teammates, we, we had a great number of kids who were successful. We had very successful teams. The kids loved it. We were fortunate of this place called the Cove in Newton um, because it wasn't like today where you had all these practices. I think we practice, you know, one and a half times. So we practice every Tuesday, let's say, and then every other Saturday we might practice. But it wasn't like it is today where the kids are going to the ring three or four times for their club team. Um, so we spent a lot of time at the pond. We spent a lot of time playing street hockey. And I had neighbors and friends. You could always find a, a street hockey game or in the winter a pickup game on the pond. So it was just really a part of the fabric. Bobby Orr talks a lot about that in his book that I read, about the nature of just playing for play as opposed to being 
regimented and rigorous and having all the structure. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a gap today in terms of playing for fun. My kids didn't grow up. I grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, and a stick and a pinky ball turned into dozens of different games. And we invented games. We all met out in the street. And then my mom said, when the street lights come on, check in or come home. And my kids didn't do that. They didn't have the opportunity necessarily to do so much just play in the street stuff. I think that's uh, a little bit of a gap today. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, now they get they get driven in a car, you know, to some exotic location and play, you know, a, a showcase, a tournament, a practice. You know, like, it really dawned on me when my son started playing youth hockey. You know, he's now 18. But when he started in our town in Walpole, King Philip Walpole is our youth hockey organization. You know, we had a, a good group of kids. And in his elementary school, I think there were seven or eight of the kids were on his team. Um, when they got to be nine, my son included, uh, they wound up on like six different club teams. So your neighborhood street hockey game, when everyone plays in their town, is really easy to organize because everybody who's eight years old is practicing at six o'clock in the evening on Tuesday, and that's it. All of a sudden, you go to a club team, and maybe you're practicing two or three times, but chances are that everyone has a different day. So the River Rats are practicing on Mondays and Wednesdays, and the South Shore Kings are Tuesdays and Fridays, and the Bach Boys are Wednesdays and Thursdays. So all of a sudden, the group of eight or 10 or 12 kids, when you start to account for ages on either side, become a little bit harder to get together and have them play because mm. they're all in a car going someplace to practice as opposed to having that free time to play. Um, and I don't think there's any question about that. And, and it, I think it's every sport. You know, it's how many times you drive by a little league field now on a weekend and it's empty, not because kids aren't playing baseball, but because maybe they're not playing in your town. They're playing for a AU or a select or a, you know, Cal Ripken team, whatever it may be. Um, but they're not playing in Fall River. They're not playing in Walpole. Or if they are, it's almost become a secondary team to them. Um, because that club team, that whatever, and I'm not, you know, down on that at all. It's kind of just the reality of where things are. You know, I, I joke a lot at coaching things that I speak at. You know, I came home on my mom's lap. I think she was smoking a cigarette from the hospital, and I was on her lap in the front seat of the car. You know, now you get locked into a childproof seat that could be dropped from the moon. Um, so things have just changed a little bit, but I, I certainly think there is a, li a little bit. There's there's less free play. There's less intuitive free play um, and part of it is I think you could even say quite honestly you know you look at the schools you know recesses decrease gym has decreased what you can do at those events Mike between the time my son graduated graduated left uh, elementary school and my daughters went you could no longer bring a ball to recess because something happened I don't know what it was um, and I think about recess like you said with your neighborhood you know, whatever you had, if someone brought a Nerf ball, great. If someone brought a football, great. A kickball, if you found a softball under the jungle gym, great. You know, yep. monkey bars, whatever it is, you just played whatever. Um, and you played different things with different kids all the time. Um, I don't even think there's that necessarily. So they have less ability, I think, to figure things out because one, maybe we as adults don't allow them to in every avenue. It's not just playing club youth sports or playing more youth sports. But it's other areas where, you know, who rides their bike anymore? You know, the old baseball, you know, throw the glove on the handlebar and drive down the bike down the local field. And whoever was there, you played. And it could have been a 16-year-old kid and a 7-year-old kid. You figured it out. 
you know, now as I, I sit here during COVID looking out my office for the last seven months, which is my living room, you know, I maybe see three kids ride by on a bike, you know, in a week. And I think when I was a kid, maybe for yourself too, you felt like, you know, the bike, that was like, you know. It was every day, either that yeah, or my skateboard. It was, it was, trans, it wasn't only transportation. It was, you know, it was just a way of life. And I know how to fix it too and build it, <laughs> change the tires, the whole thing. I love my bike. Yeah. It's everything so, to me. I, I think, you know, I, I think I know I played more street hockey than my children do. Um, I know I skated on the pond more and, and, you know, we have a backyard rink that I've built. And part of it is for me is to kind of recreate that same thing for my kids that I have, because it's even harder. You can't just show up at the local pond anymore and skate because there's signs and there's someone patrolling it. You got to join the, the club, whatever it may be. So um, it's not all bad. It's not all negative. I think it is just kind of the reality of where things are compared yeah. to when I grew up and it was play anything everywhere, every all the time. We used to play on the, as you go up Com Ave, you know, we used to play on the grass area that separates the carriage lane from Com Ave as you go up through Newton. And, and we would play football on that. And it was never a thought that, you know, you might fall off the curb and get hit by a car. We used to play wiffle ball there. There was never the thought that you might, you know, hit the ball into the street and never get it back. It was like, okay, this is where we play. This is how we do it. Now, you know, I'm not sure a parent would let their child do that. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I probably wouldn't let my kids do that. But even if you did, you know, the town might not let you do it. Or, you know, I see signs at the Little League field that maybe they were up when I was a kid, but, you know, you can't go on the field now unless you have a permit or unless it's a scheduled practice, you know. If you walk into a rink, how many times is there actually open ice? So some of it maybe we, we don't have the ability to, to do in our current state and day and time. Coach, talk to me a little bit about uh, how you ended up playing college hockey. Who is your high school hockey coach? And then how was that transition to college hockey? And did you see a change in expectations for you as a player? How did your coach get you to that? place of uh, accomplishment transitioning from high school to college the act of actually coaching Jamie Rice what was that like were you uh were you a pliable kid were you a kid that had to be taught something and then go figure it out on his own did you get it quickly I mean all three of my kids are different learners totally different learners and so what was your learning style and, and what coaching style worked for you well I was so I, I actually I went to Rivers and I had two coaches at Rivers Pete Brock and Joe Finnegan two completely different guys, uh, both very good coaches, both very successful. Uh, but Joe Finnegan, my coach, my junior and senior, we won the New England's at Rivers. It was the first time they had ever won anything really in hockey. Um, this back in the days, they don't have, we didn't have the rink they have now. We played at Natick Marina, West Suburban Arena. And then I did a postgraduate year at Hotchkiss and I played for a, a gentleman by the name of, of Jeff Kozak. And not slighting Pete Brock or, or no offense meant, but, you know, Joe Finnegan really tapped into, you know, my personal accountability, being accountable for myself, being on time, being responsible, being a good teammate. You know, he was a, he was a good hockey coach. He was a better human being and a, and a fantastic teacher. And I think he really instilled in me a lot of things that people probably don't, when they think of a coach, I think we all tend to think of X's and O's or the Rudy speech, you know, who can get up and give that. And I really do think it is the, the environment and the expectations you uphold as much as it is the actual knowledge. And you have to have knowledge. You have to be good at what you do. But Joe Fingham was really somebody who tapped into like, this is what it means to be 
you know, a captain, a leader, a player, a member of a team. These are our expectations. This is what, you know, you personally are accountable for. Um, I broke my leg as a junior, spent 26 days in a hospital bed. Wow. Um, so I missed a large portion. I was young. Uh, I was, you know, 17 as a high school graduate. So I postgrad did a postgraduate year at Hotchkiss. And there I played for Jeff Kozak. And Jeff was, you know, a Dartmouth grad, a fabulous player athletically. And he was a, a fantastic coach. And, and he really kind of pushed the next level of it, which was, you know, a deeper understanding. I, I loved to play. And I was always pretty good. You know, I was always fortunate enough to be a, a pretty good player. But I just, I loved to play. So I, I think coaching was easy because as much as I loved to play, I loved to compete. Like, I, I just love to backyard basketball, 21, you know, get on the goal line, you want to race. Um, I love to play. I love to compete as a kid. So I think I was fairly easy to coach that way and that there wasn't a lot of need to motivate me. I was probably hard to coach because I love to play and I love to compete. I wanted to be on the ice every second. I wanted to play another game. You know, if we lost, I took it terribly. If we won, I was probably a little overzealous in my winning. But they both – in different ways, Joe and, and Jeff, I think kind of rounded me out to the point where I could become a college hockey player, um, you know, both as a man, as an adult, as a person, morally and ethically, and then actually hockey-wise, um, you know, I think Jeff Kozak really put some finishing touches on my game, which helped me flourish and get to a point where, you know, college hockey became a viable option. Uh, but as I said, I, you know, I had an opportunity to play college football. I had an opportunity to call, play college baseball. I actually did play baseball in addition to hockey at Babson. But as far as the hockey only piece, you know, those two guys just gave me the, the completion of whatever I was. I was a raw piece of clay. I was a thin raw piece of clay. I think I was 170 pounds and 18 years old. But they gave me both the internal, hey, this is who I need to be and what I need to do and what's important and what, what is valued by a coach and a team. And then, hey, these are some things that as a player, you know, if you can excel at these things, it'll help you go a long way. You said morally and ethically, right? Those are two pretty heavy words. Um, when you think about young adults coming up in the world and joining the, you know, the world of, of citizenry, really, you think about ethics and morality as huge components to, you know, a community or society that, cares for people and creates value collectively. But I don't necessarily think that a lot of parents see their kids going into programs to become moralists or people involved in ethics. I believe it's a huge and important missing piece. And, and, you know, I'm a huge believer in moral and ethics. Um, But how did someone teach you moral and ethics while they're teaching you hockey? That seems like, a pretty big divide and and one not necessarily tied to winning at a hockey game or is it yeah i i think uh you know I, I think one of the benefits of a private school environment is these people are your coaches they're your teachers they're your advisors um you know they certainly are your mentors but i think they become your mentors because they have a much deeper reach because you're seeing them you know as at rivers uh i had joe finnegan in football and hockey he was my advisor. He was my math teacher for two years. I'd see him in the lunchroom. I'd see him when I had a problem. I'd see him when he had a problem with me. Um, you know, that it, it went both ways. And then at Hotchkiss with Jeff Kozak, 
I didn't have him in class. He was my advisor, but I saw him in the dorms. I saw him at dinner. I saw him with his family. Um, I played golf with him. So, you know, I think it wasn't a lesson like you would think about someone teaching as far as here's the whiteboard. Let me write it down for you. You go home and study it. Come back. Tell me what you think. It really was teaching me by observation and how they carried themselves and how they conduct themselves. And there were little things like I said, Joe Finnegan, you know, being on time. I grew up the son of an army person, so it was instilled in me early, but it was reinforced, you know, being on time, treating other people well. You know, we, we always left our locker room exceptionally clean. Like it wasn't acceptable to throw tape on the ground or not put in the barrel. It wasn't acceptable. As I said, at, at Rivers, we played at Natick. It wasn't acceptable to walk into another town's rink and not treat it well. It wasn't acceptable to get off the bus and have the bus look, you know, crap house. Now, granted, there was a lot less. There was no family meals on it. You know, if you brought a Snickers bar out of the vending machine, you were doing okay. But then I get to Hodgkins and Jeff Kozak the same way. We got on the bus. We, we drove vans everywhere. We never took buses. And I remember I sat in the front seat the first trip. He turned off the radio. We stopped at this little store in Sharon, Connecticut, down the road from Hotchkiss on our way out of town. He bought the New York Times, handed it to me and said, read it and let's talk about it. You know, I'm 18 years old and I'm like, read the New York what? You know, I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. What is this strange rag? It's not the globe. <laughs> um, and that was our band rides, you know, and there were eight of us in there. And we were talking about things that we were, you know, reading in the New York Times. And he was telling us things and we learned that he played at Dartmouth and played professionally in France things that you kind of oh Jeff Kozak was a good player and we just had conversations so I think it really was it was moral and ethic development and growth and learning as a product of the environment and, and these two men created really incredible environments and I think that's probably what I took with me coaching that I didn't realize when I started coaching from them was that you know the environment is really the key you know and i i tell the story all the time it can't kind of came full circle nature and nurture or something i think coaches always you know try to define or try to find which one really it is and i have twins i have twin daughters and nature kicks the hell out of nurture so you get what you get and then it's up to you to build around it you know, I guess that's my long way of saying it, you know, so I think my twin daughters are a great example of they're completely different people, but the environment we try to put them in it is the same so that they can hopefully develop within their individual styles and abilities, a commonality and a framework that my wife and I think is important. So I really think that Jeff and, and Joe, the moral, the ethics, the good citizenry, the good teammate, the good leadership. I, I was fortunate to be captain of both those teams and not, you know, hey, look at me, but hey, you know, there were certain expectations that they never had to say to me that you could just kind of feel, you know, whether it be a glance or a look. Uh, my, my kids all say, you know, dad, you have this look you give us and it, and it probably goes back to them. And, and even my dad, where sometimes the unspoken word is more powerful than the spoken word. And so I think when you see these men who are, and we had fantastic teams at both places with really a lot of good players. You kind of get a sense for how it's going well. And when it's not, when they look at you, you kind of get a sense like, okay, we're straying maybe a little bit from why it goes well. And so I think I was pliable in that I was able to pick up on that. And I'm not sure at the time I could have spoken to it like I can now, you know, 35, 36, 37 years later from that. Sure. Point. 
but I do think it, it's a good lesson as a coach or as a teacher, as an adult, like everything you say is important, but how you say it, your emotions, what you say, how you're relaying it, how you walk into a room, you know, are you upbeat? Are you downtrodden? You know, how you doing? I'm okay. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks. You know, all these things that I think are maybe even the verbal and nonverbal cues that are not quote unquote, the coach speak are picked up upon a lot more than we realize. Um, I think that's leadership. Yeah. That's leadership. And it's incumbent upon the leader to know how to do those things to whom at what time with what consistency or what volume I have over right now about 150 employees and depending on which employee, which department, which manager, I have to conduct myself I think, in a way that maximizes their potential at every turn. And I can see some people need to be picked up. Some need, people sometimes need to be settled down. Those are two opposing forces, right? But as a leader, I believe your sense is that you know how to adjust your own behavior to maximize the output of the person you are trying to mentor. Yeah, and, and I, I agree 100%. I also think at the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself. And I think, again, Jeff and Joe, that was them. They were who they were. You know, Joe Finnegan was a college football player who played hockey in high school, but not in college. And we wanted to put in New England's mm. at Rivers. Jeff Kozak was, you know, a, a captain, a phenomenal player at Dartmouth when they were, you know, just great. And then a successful college coach. Um you know, two completely different people, but they were both really comfortable in their own skin. They weren't trying to be something they weren't. And I think, you know, for me, um, that's probably been the, the biggest thing that I, you know, I am what I am, you know, and, and you get what you get with me. I'm kind of translucent that way. And that I, I, you know, I love kids. I love hockey. I love to compete. I still love the game. Uh, I am not a Rhodes Scholar. I am not a, a whiz at a lot of other things but I am what I am and I hold myself to the same hopeful ideals and, 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 you know, goals that, that I do our players, not because I think I need to hold them to anything. I think it becomes more of an osmosis or a reflection type of, you know, almost like us in this conversation on a zoom call. It's almost a reflection. You don't need to tell people what you are or what you want to be. You need to live it and embody it. And then it becomes a lot easier to have that, become genuine one but two become admirable and, and i think something gets picked up on mm, that's a powerful thought T tell me a little bit about becoming a college hockey coach which you've been now for 30 something years i'd love to know your learning through that experience and what you'd like to share with us about where you began maybe the middle of the process and where you are today give us a sense of that journey yeah so i mean I go to Babson College and not renowned for hockey coaches, pretty well known for business and entrepreneurship. Uh, I always wanted to teach and coach. I, I don't know how or why. My father was in sales. My mother was in real estate or she was secretary and then in real estate. Um, you know, I have two older siblings who one did not go to college. One took a long time to go to college. Uh, another sibling was in the theater and performing arts. So certainly teaching and coaching were not in our background. You know, it wasn't uh it wasn't a lineage, but I, I always just, I, I just love sports. I love, I love games. I love playing. I love kids. I love teammates. And I think that, you know, early on in my time at Babson, I, I knew I wanted to teach and coach. And then I graduate, I'm getting ready to graduate. I'm playing during the baseball season. And a 
former teammate of mine named Ronnie Barron, who actually was the best man at my wedding. He was a teammate of mine, had spent a year at Colby. His high school coach had gotten the Colby job, left Lawrence Academy, Charlie Corey, left Lawrence Academy, went to Colby. Needed an assistant. You know, when, when I took the job, it was $4,000. So it certainly wasn't something where a lot of people were beating down the door. So Ronnie was there. We were very close. And he said, hey, I'm going to not do this anymore. But if you, I know you've thought about coaching. If you want, maybe I can help you get started here. Um, I talked to Steve Stone, my college coach. I also had an opportunity to go teach and coach at Salisbury for the legendary Dick Flood, who unfortunately just passed away this past winter. But the, you know, the Flood Meyer tournament, he was at Nobles for many years. And he and Lefty Meyer really kind of built up the Milton Nobles hockey and that rivalry and the Christmas tournament. But he was at Salisbury at the time and he and Coach Stone were very close. And so those are my two choices. It was either coach and teach at Salisbury or go and coach at, at Colby. I don't know. I just said like, you know, I think I'll give this college coaching a try. And so I went to Colby for $4,000 and um, I was fortunate after a year there to get a job at Dartmouth as an assistant for a year. Um, and then Bob Gaudet hired me at Brown in 1992. And, and as a coach, you know, I said I played for Joe Fing, I played for Jeff Kozak, I played for Steve Strong at, at Babson, which is a hockey experience, was second to none. He was, a, you know, just an incredible, still is an incredible hockey mind, really gifted, phenomenal player, but a great coach. I mean, you look at what he did, did as Babson as a coach, and it's remarkable. So I have a little bit of identity. I go to Kobe, I go to Dartmouth, and I go to Brown. I work with Bob Gardette. Uh, he hired me from, from Dartmouth. Ironically, his... Uh, assistant Scotty Boric had gone to Colby, become the head coach. Charlie Corey had gone back to Lawrence Academy. Uh, Brian McCloskey, his other assistant, had gone to UNH. So he needed two assistants. He hired Brian DeRocher as one assistant, who's now the women's coach at BU, and myself. Um, and that started seven years working with Bob. I spent five years with him at Brown and two more years at Dartmouth. And I would say that, you know, really – I was fortunate from youth hockey forward to be around really, really good people who were really good coaches. Um, and then Bob kind of burst in my life. I was 25 years old, um, you know, probably ripe for that next step of growth. You know, we talked a little bit about earlier, you know, being pliable, being malleable and, and learning. I was probably at the point where I was experienced enough to be able to be on my own, but now ready to, to, learn a little more and need that and I spent seven years with him five at Brown two at Dartmouth and and you know he's uh he means a lot to me as a person just retired from Dartmouth this past spring um when I won my first game at Babson I actually sent him the game puck and I said you know this is kind of what you mean to me I then spent five years at at uh, Northeastern and then I've been at Babson ever since but I I think that you know a lot of the people I coached with um, have been really impactful. I mean, I am truly the product of, a, you know, a thousand fathers as far as coaching goes. Um, you know, we, we mentioned, you and I spoke prior to this about, you know, Mark Davis, who passed away on September 11th. He and I coached at Brown. His brother, twin brother, Michael, is, you know, as close a friend as I have right now and uh, helped me for two years. At, at Babson was a coach in Wheeling for two years, coached at BU for 15 years. Brian DeRocher, who I mentioned, um, Paul Pearl, who's the associate head coach at BU. I worked for Bruce Crowder. I worked at Northeastern with Paul Canada, who's an incredibly successful coach at Milton Academy. Um, you know, What's the difference between 
the player, Jim Rice, and the coach, Jim Rice. <clears throat> you talked to me at the beginning about all these coaches making you a certain type of player. What did these coaches make you as a certain type of coach? You know, I, I think everybody I've worked with, from Colby, Dartmouth Brown, Dartmouth two more years, five years at Northeastern, and even my years at, at Babson, and you're throwing USA Hockey and Mass Satellite Program, which I spent a lot of time coaching when I was younger, and even summer camps. I think I've taken something from everybody. And, and as a player, I was, you know, it was kind of like just show up and go. It's what I did. Play hard, be really competitive, have good enough ability to have some success, but just love to play. And I think what I learned from all these coaches was, you know, there, there's so many different avenues to attack. There's so many different ways you can, as you mentioned, with your employees, you can reach different people. There's different ways. There's different things you can do. There's different pieces. You can reach, you know, them holistically. You can reach them spiritually. You can reach them educationally. You can reach them technically. You know, you can challenge them physically. Um, and I think I took a little bit from all of them. And the other thing that happened is, I've shared this with people before, is, it's probably 1993 or 94, and I was four or five years into being a college coach. And a part of being a Division One assistant is really you procure players. You, you're recruiting them a lot. And I would spend most of September and October on the road, you know, 40, 50, 60 days out of first 80, just trying to find hockey players. And I was in Calgary, Alberta. Now, I'll never forget it. And I woke up one morning about nine, went and got breakfast. I'm reading the paper. I'm watching my umpteenth episode of Sports Center. I'd been in a game the night before, I was waiting for that day's game. And I'm like, I, I've got to be better. Like I, I've got to learn more. I've, I've got to read more, quite honestly. I, I've got to start to invest in myself to become a better coach. And I called a, a gentleman. I said, you know, I need five good books to read. <clears throat> and he sent me a list of 30, which I still have in my desk drawer. And they range from the new toughness training for sports to night you know, really far ranging. Mm. I think he knew what I was looking for. <clears throat> and so he sent me this list of books and I went to the local, I don't even know, I couldn't tell you what it was in, in Calgary, Alberta, but I went to the local bookstore and I bought five of them. And I just started reading and reading and reading and reading. So instead of sitting around watching Sports Center and watching every highlight of every sports event in North America for five hours straight, <laughs> I just started reading. And, and then it became, I would carry a book with me everywhere. So in a parking lot before a game or on the plane, I would read and read. And that's really, I think for me professionally was probably one of the biggest jumps I made as far as becoming a better coach, a better mentor, a better, a better learner of how people learn was just started reading a real wide variety of books. Anything I get my hands on. As far it sounds as exciting. It sounds like you were energized and, bringing your focus to a new level and absorbing new information and kind of resorting or, or refiguring out how your brain worked and, you know, how to apply your talents. It's, it sounds like a breakthrough time. It, it really was that. And, and, you know, having, as I said, Bob Goodhead as, as a, as a personal mentor and, a, and Brian DeRocher at the time, you know, those two guys were, Bob was 34, Brian was 39 when I got to Brown at 23 years old. So they were established and older, but not that much older. They were more older brotherish, uh, both married with families, but, you know, they could relate to me. And, you know, so they gave me a lot of runway. And then, 
this other gentleman who I called and gave me the books, it was like, okay, now I've got the best of both worlds. I've got kind of this Ernie Adams type of guru working with me personally. And then I've got these two people in my professional life who I see every day that really shaped me. And, and I think, you know, it's the first time I ever heard and, and became myself a lifelong learner. Not that I thought I knew everything. I didn't know that I didn't know, know everything. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that there were things that I could take from track and field or from sports psychology. And about the same time I started my master's at BU, which was in human movement. And, um, but I, I think it was just really the, the intersection of a lot of really important factors in my life um, of people, of coaching, of environment, of opportunity that, that led me to a place where I could start to really put some uh, identity as to who I would be as a coach. How have you dealt, if you kind of fast forward and go to today, how have you dealt with the fact that you can't see your players on a regular basis? At the end of last season, you guys were awarded a berth into the NCAAs and the boys were told that they can't play, that the season was canceled. You know, how are you managing both yourself and, and them and using, you know, kind of a overly used word right now, but resilience yeah. to find your path forward into this season? It, it's really hard, you know. I imagine it somebody is. last week, you know, I'm a coach. It, it's, <clears throat> it's what I've chosen to do. It's what I want to do. It's what I love to do. Um, but without players, I, you know, there's no need for a coach if there's no players. You know, it's it's not a it's not a it's not a system or an environment where it's top down. It really is bottom up. And you know, I joked with my kids that Babson pretty early on found out I was non-essential last spring when they shut down the school and everyone went remote that I didn't have to go every day. So, you know, they figured out quickly that I'm a non-essential employee. But uh, I think your players would feel differently. Well, but you you, you realize that it you know with, without them you know. I'd be honest, you know, I've lost a little bit of my identity recently, you know, not seeing them, not being able to be around them. Ultimately, it's why I do what I do is for them. And it, it's a struggle. It's hard. It's really hard. And it's hard. It's the more challenging piece is not the not coaching. It's the not seeing them. It's the not bumping into them in the cafeteria or on campus or having them come to the rink just to, get something or swing by the office, say hi, or maybe they've had a difficulty or a challenge that you can help them with, or maybe they've done something that's a difficulty or challenge and you need to address with them. But, <laughs> you know, it's really, it's, it, it, I have personally found it to be more of a struggle than I would have thought. Um, mm. And I certainly don't think I could have imagined last March 12th that on September the 14th, this is where we would be today. I, I think, I honestly believe we have a lot of smart people in the country who are working really hard at solving this. Because you go back, I was just joking with my neighbor, you know, on, on March 12th, it was like, if you opened your door, you were afraid that this COVID would come in your house and wipe out your family. Yep. And you're wiping down groceries and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to go to the supermarket when no one's there and you're not doing anything. You know, you're, you're ordering things from Amazon. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think in, on September 14th, as bad as that was, that we'd be at a point where we can't meet as a team, where kids in a college environment can't go in each other's dorm rooms if, they, if they're not roommates. 
um, that we as a coaching staff at Babson are not all in every day. So I'm struggling with that. I and mean, I think, um, you know, we did a lot of the Zoom calls, but even, you know, I think in the course of the summer, all of us found that anybody who deals in a, in a environment that's interactive, that requires human connection, at first it was great. A Zoom call was great because you could see them and you could, you know, you could see the, you know, the, the feelings and emotion. But they became so prevalent that I think people got burned out on. Yeah. And it didn't have that same resonation. It didn't have that same feeling. Hard and to they, see it three-dimensionally what your body language is. They, they were productive, but they didn't have that same zest. And so it's hard, you know, coming back to campus, you see the kids bits and pieces you know you see someone from across the way and you know like you said you know they've got a mask on and you don't know who it is and yeah um that's been a real struggle and i think it's an area that as a coach as a father as a human being you know you never quite realize how you know my job is not one that can be done remotely forever that's right um if you're in finance maybe you can if you're in sales maybe you can my job requires human interaction and I probably do it because I like it. I wouldn't say I'm an outwardly people person, but I love being around people and I love molding things and I love interacting and building and challenging and growing. So uh, it has been a real struggle. I, I think I try to, you know, on the one hand, I try to be a, a very apolitical person and, and stick away from that realm because I think it really clouds things in this current environment. We need, we need, we need a map. You know, we need a pathway to how we can get back to normal. Um, and I mentioned, you know, to our families, you know, I feel at times like it's holding a, a candle in a hurricane because you're, you're trying to find this pathway and it feels like every once in a while, it's just getting blown up by something else. As I said, if you had told me on March 12th, that September 14th, I would not be in my office full time, that our kids would not be together full time. I would have said, you're crazy. I just didn't see this being now. I would have Coach, when you think back of, of all the games you played, the tournaments and the challenges, what have you gained more for? The wins uh, from, excuse me, the wins or the losses? What's a better teacher? Oh, the wins. The wins are way better. You know, Bill Parcells is winning in this misery. Um, no, I, I, think, I think every game has value. And I think I wouldn't say that you learn more from a loss. I think when anybody loses, they pour over it more and look for answers. Why, 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 why? Whereas you win, you tend to maybe look at and say, yeah, we did this well. When you lose, it's like, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? So I, I've never quite completely bought into the losing's a better teacher because ultimately, you know, we are, are, are in an endeavor that rewards winning. You know, that there is a scoreboard. There is, a, there is someone who's going to emerge victorious. And that's certainly different than how we do things in practice in our culture. So, to so to go on the wins. to be clear on the record, you're saying winning, the benefits of winning. Are you saying build the self esteem and validate the hard work, and therefore it's well, it's you get that gain from that? I, I don't think there's any question. I mean, if you enter any competitive endeavor, the benefit of winning is beyond the score or the sale or the you know financial gain. Um, it makes you feel better about yourself. You know, hey, we, we all want to feel good about ourselves. Very few people want to walk around and be miserable and just get their teeth kicked in all the time. Mm -hmm. um, 
I just think as a coach, you know, that you, you, you're not being, at least to me, you're not being 100% truthful if you say, geez, the losing is more valuable because yeah. there's things that you do when you win that you do really well that validate either what your core structure is or what your belief system is or what your um, thoughts are or your philosophies are that, you know, if you don't have that feedback from winning, I'm not sure you can emerge as successful down the road. Like if you just lose all the time, I'm not sure you're going to be as good as you possibly ever could be. I think most people who are incredibly successful, I wouldn't call them winners. I think they've had more successes. They've won more individual things. And so they have more to draw upon because I think within every win, like a game, there's times where it's 50, 50, there's times where it might go, you're down one, nothing. You're down two nothing. You're down three one. You take a bad penalty. You're up and you get tied. Um, you know, it it isn't only about I think the end of the game scoreboard. It's the scoreboard within the game. You're up a little. You're down. You have that like you mentioned earlier. How am I dealing with the resiliency? I think the greatest thing about sports is that you have to exhibit and and possess resiliency throughout the course. Very few times are you going to walk into anything and just like, hey, we're winning today. You know, maybe if, if the Babson College team went and played the KPW mites, we could say that. <laughs> but other than that, most times you're going into this, if, if you really love it, you're going into it. The other team has a coach. They have players. They lift weights. They do video. They want to win. Now you're saying it's more of a measurement. Like, okay, let's, let's see how good we are. Let's see what we've done. Let's see if what we do works. Coach, if I'm a kid listening to this or a parent listening to this or a coach listening to this and I want to reach out to you and either play for you or join your cause, how should I get a hold of you? Uh, I'd like to say I'm the best email or phone person in the world. I guess I'm still stuck in the – I tell the kids at Babson all the time, it's, it's 2020 out here. Sometimes in my world it's like 1950. You know, the phone yeah, you want a letter and a handshake. Yeah, yeah, a handshake. God, speak of another thing that we don't do anymore. Um, <laughs> Uh, my email address is jrice, J-R-I-C-E, at babson.edu. I'm also on Twitter, at ricer18. Uh, and my DMs are open, as they say. Those are probably the two easiest. And I guess the only thing I'd say to anybody is that, uh, you know, the hardest thing with emails become it's a constant game of tennis where you feel like you have to return serve. Sometimes I'm returning a different serve and a different avenue. I respond to everybody. I've written a number of emails even say, hey, sorry, it's taken me a week to get back to you. Um, I get back to everybody who reached out to me, but just realize that although it's instantaneous in delivery and in method, um, sometimes the, the human factor on my end is it's not going to be quite as instantaneous going back. Understood. So if you're listening to the show and, and Coach Rice is reminding you of either playing for him, with him, or a different coach that had a similar impact in your life, you know, Give your coach a call because I'm sure Coach Bryce would love to hear from you. And I know if you're a coach out there and thinking of a certain player, call that player, call that alum. Stay connected. Coach, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, tremendous interview, and, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me very much. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been listening to On The Whistle. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at onthewhistle.com.